Amen. Would you show your appreciation to the team today for leading us in worship? And what a great day. And it's so great to see you. And it's so good to be home. If you don't mind, go ahead and turn to somebody to your left and uh, tell them they look nice today. Go ahead and tell them that. Turn to the person on your other side and say, sorry, you are my second choice. Well, it's so great to see you. Uh, Man, it's been great uh, all morning long just seeing so many familiar faces and friends and getting to connect. And uh, some of you drove in for the weekend, and it's just such an honor to get to be home. It's been a little bit since we've been able to be here in person, and so I'm so grateful and it's been so amazing over the last couple of years just to see what God is doing here at First Baptist. And to think 184 years ago, I don't know that anybody would have imagined all that God was going to do here. And so would you show your appreciation to Pastor Jared and the entire team and just say thank you for being obedient and serving so well. It's such a joy to finally get to connect in person and to see the work. And we're so grateful for you. Uh, my wife, Laura, is here. She's the redhead, so if everybody will stare at her real quick, she'll, um, she'll turn red. Uh, we've been married for 11 years, and we have the manliest 10-pound guard dog. He's a cockapoo named Ollie. And uh, uh, just disclaimer, he does like to dress up from time to time, so I'll lose my man card for admitting that. Uh, so we're so thrilled to be here next to her is my mom. Mom, if you don't mind, would you stand for a second? Could you stand for a second? When I, when I was growing up, she was 4'11", but I think over time she's shrinking. So, uh, y'all know my mom, Nancy. And then this is my brother, Mike. If you don't mind, give Mike some love this morning as well. He's the, uh, more coordinated of us. And so it's fun to, Fun to be here. Fun to see you guys. And just, I love Olive Branch. This place is home. And there's something about being home and just seeing what God is doing here. When I was growing up here, many of you old timers will remember back in the day, we were a one red light town. Everything else was four-way stops. You know, so all these intersections are new to me. Uh, Back then, there wasn't a lot of choices to eat at. We had Sonic and we had Dodge Store. And that's back when Dodge Store actually had burgers. So anybody remember the Papa Burgers? Y'all remember those? They were so good. I'm still rooting that they'll bring them back. Are any of y'all Sonic fans? Do y'all like Sonic? That used to be the Friday night, drive the triangle downtown and circle the Sonic. And Sonic's awesome, but when that's the only restaurant in town, it gets a little bit old. So it's like, hey, you graduated high school. Where do you want to celebrate? Sonic. (laughs) Hey, you're getting married. Where do you want to have the reception? So, so, so I'm so thrilled to get to come home and see all the growth and all the, all the good things that are going on around here. I tell everybody that goes into ministry, you need to have a place like Olive Branch because literally this place has shaped my life. And so, so, so glad you're here. If you're new around here, this is a great place to call home. In fact, this afternoon, if you're able to come back to the tailgate, the 430, I understand there's a little competition going on with cornhole. And so we're praying for Pastor Charlie and his competitive nature. Uh, so it's going to be great fun. But today, what I want to do is I just want to take a couple minutes and hopefully encourage you. Uh, my hope is that you would experience what I've had the joy of experiencing through this church. And really what I remember most and the things that I value most, man, there's a lot of mission trips. There's a lot of good things that happened. But when I think about this place, I think about people. 
I think about people. And on Tailgate Sunday, one of the things that I am so reminded of is all of us need a team around us. Does that make sense? All of us need people in our lives that we can do life with. We need people that we can walk with, that we can enjoy being around, and people that can be with us through the thick and thin. We need a team in our life. We need people that aren't just acquaintances. We need people that aren't just people that we know sort of in passing. We need what I would call three specific kinds of friends in our life. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to follow along. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. And what I want to do this morning is just in a super practical way describe from the life of David three kinds of friends that I'm convinced every single one of us needs. No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, no matter if you're new around here, if you've been around a long, long time, my hope is that we'll see three snapshots of friendships that literally could shape us and literally could change the rest of our lives. I told the first hour that probably about 10 years ago, Laura and I went on our first mission trip to Kenya. Now, I don't know if you've been to Kenya. I know many of you have been to Honduras and some, some other places, and maybe it's similar. But I remember when we first got to Kenya and we walked around, it was just obvious that there was a lot of poverty around us. I mean, you walked around and you saw these little places, you know, tin roofs, tin walls, that people were living in. No electricity, no running water, and you'd walk through the slums and you'd see all of the lack. And I'm telling you, when, when we first got there on the front end of the trip, when we were walking around and we saw all of the, the need and we saw just the, the, the just total poverty that we saw there, on the front end of the trip, I was asking this question. I was asking, how could anybody live this way? How could anybody? And maybe you've been on a trip where you've had that same kind of, kind of mindset. I mean, literally people that are just working that day, hoping that they're going to have enough money by the end of the day to feed their families. People that are just trying to get by and they're just trying to live as long as they can. And at the beginning of the trip, I'd be like, man, how could anybody live this way? But then by the end of the week, it totally shifted. By the end of the week, even though they didn't have a lot physically, even though they didn't have a lot of means like you and I would expect, Man, we walked around and we saw how much joy those people had. We saw how much excitement for life they had. We went to a church in, uh, outside of Nairobi. And man, I'm telling you, it was, it was just unbelievable to see the joy, the happiness, the connection there. And so the beginning of the week, I was like, how could anybody live this way? And by the end of the week, I'm thinking, they've got something that we're missing. Are you tracking with me? They've got something that we're missing. And one of the things that I've noticed throughout COVID in the last couple of years is just the, the sense that on the outside, pre-COVID, most people acted like they had it together. But what happened during the pandemic and all of the angst and unsettledness and all those things, it seems like it illustrated the fact that on the outside, we would act like we have it together. But on the inside, there's just a lot of pain, isn't there? There's a lot of isolation. In fact, one of the things that we're seeing in Sugar Hill, and I don't know if it's true here in Olive Branch, is that there's so many people that honestly are lonely. People that honestly just don't have people in their life that, that they've lost some friendships and they've lost some relationships and there's some family strain through all the politics and COVID and all the things. And on the other side of it, there are people that are missing something. Do you know it's possible to have 200 friends on Facebook but still not have any really close friends that you could call on. 
You could be socially connected where you walk through Olive Branch and you see people and you give them sort of that Olive Branch nod. Hey, what's up? How are you? Right. But on the inside, not feel like you have anybody you could turn to. And one of the things when I walked away from Kenya or came back from Kenya that I thought about is that maybe they are, maybe they've got physical poverty. Maybe they've got economic poverty. But one of the things that they don't have is what I would call social poverty because they were so connected. And so today what I want to do is I want to show you three snapshots from the life of David and to ask the question, do you have these people in your life? Do you have these relationships? Do you have a solid team in your life? In fact, I I wrote down some notes. Uh, Over the years, I've heard a lot of sermons about friendships. I've heard a lot of sermons about relationships. And so I've just grabbed some of these phrases that stood out to me. Listen to this one. The first one says this, it is impossible to live the right kind of life if you have the wrong kind of friends. It's impossible to live the right kind of life. In other words, uh, no matter what you're trying to aim for, if you've got people that aren't on that same journey, it's going to have an effect on it. Here's another phrase I've found so helpful Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends. Show me the people that you spend time with. Show me the people that you hang out with. Show me the people that have influence on you. Show me your friends and I can fast forward and I can predict what your life is going to look like. Here's another phrase that I found super helpful. Your friends will always determine the quality and the direction of your life. Your friends will always determine the quality and the direction of your life. And here's the way that Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, He who walks with the wise will grow wise, but a companion of fools will get in trouble. And so can I be honest with you? Some of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life were with my friends. Anybody else not afraid to admit that? And some of the best things that I've ever done have been with my friends. And so I want to show you these three friends. So if you're a note taker today, uh, man, I hope this is encouragement. The first kind of friend that I think every single one of us, myself included, needs in our life is what I call number one, the kind of friend that helps us get better. They make us better. We need friends like that. So in 1 Samuel 16, if you know the background, Uh, Saul has been the king. Saul was on the throne. He started out pretty well, but somewhere along the way, Saul got his eyes off of the Lord. And the Bible actually says that God rejected him as king. And so if you know the story, Saul is still on the throne. He's the most powerful man in land. He's the guy in charge. He's the guy that's physically still on the throne. Everybody's supposed to serve him. Everybody's supposed to to acknowledge him. But God had already said, you know what? I'm going to replace him. And so in 1 Samuel 16, there's a prophet named Samuel. And God gives Samuel this job. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to this guy's house named Jesse. And one of his sons is going to be the next king. Now think about how risky this is for Samuel. Samuel is a prophet. He's just trying to get by. He's trying to, you know, not get in trouble with the king. But now he's on this mission where he's supposed to go and anoint the next king of Israel. So if Saul hears about this, he could kill him. If Saul hears about this, he could do all, all, all the crazy stuff to him. But Samuel's obedient. So in 1 Samuel 16, he shows up to a guy's house named Jesse. And Jesse has a lot of sons. And so uh, Samuel says to him, Jesse, Bring out all of your sons. One of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. You can imagine as a dad how powerful that must have been. Can you imagine what that was like for Jesse to be like, one of my sons again? So he literally brings out all the sons. He lines them up and listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 16 as he lines them up. 
It says in verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. And so Jesse brings out all of his sons and the first one, the oldest one, the tallest one. I don't know, maybe he's the best looking one. Maybe he's very athletic. Maybe he's the cornhole champion of his day. I'm not sure, living Bible version, but close enough. Uh, I thought that'd be funnier, but it wasn't. Excellent. Thanks for the courtesy laugh. So the oldest one comes out and he's like, he, surely, I mean, he's tall, he's strong, he's good looking. He's the natural leader. Surely he's going to be the guy, right? Surely he's going to be the guy. And I think that's the way a lot of us are. I think there's a lot of us that, that maybe you are the oldest, maybe you are the tallest, maybe you are the, the natural leader in your family, but maybe you're like me, you never felt that way, right? Maybe you felt like, man, I'm just the awkward one. I mean, my spiritual gift is awkwardness. When I'm not preaching, I'm Mr. Introvert. And so I can have an awkward one. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so maybe there's some of you that maybe you feel that way. I, I think it's so fun to get to be here on tailgate Sunday. I almost wore Georgia shirts because I've lived there 14 years now, which is uh, crazy. But I asked my wife, do I wear a Georgia shirt? Do I wear a sport coat? And then I said, yes, ma'am. I'm wearing the sport coat today. So yes, ma'am. But we've been there, I've been on staff almost 14 years and, uh, and absolutely love it. But it's so funny to be back on tailgate because I don't know anything about sports. I struck out in t-ball when I was a kid. So that's how, what's worse than that is I struck out at kickball. You got the big red ball coming at you. And so, uh, so I, I don't know a ton. So I'm not the guy that if you were to line me up, I'm not the guy that's going to get picked on the team. In fact, here at First Baptist in sixth grade, I was the last kid to get picked for the basketball team. I, was, I showed up to basketball camp that Coach Davis was running, hoping to learn. And instead, I had some kid punch me in the back and say, why are you even here? Because I was that awkward, right? And uh, so imagine this tallest, oldest, strongest, good-looking, natural leader guy thinking, I'm about to be the next king of Israel. But listen to what it says in verse 7. When Samuel sees him in verse 6, he says, surely this is the Lord's anointing. I mean, look at him. Look how amazing he is. And then listen to verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not judge by his appearance. Don't judge by his height, for I have rejected him. Do you see that? He says, but I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? He looks at the heart. And so here's this moment where, where, where there's about to be a new king and he looks at the most obvious person. Surely he's going to be the king. And God says, no, 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 no. He's not a bad person, I, but he's not the guy. And so essentially what Samuel does is he goes down the line and he goes to the next one. Well, maybe it's this one. Maybe, maybe he's going to be the king. And again, God whispers in his heart, it's not him. It's not him. Don't look at the outward appearance. Look at his heart. He goes down the line and he goes through all of these sons and he gets to the very end and God keeps saying, no, it's not this one. No, it's not this one. No, it's not this one. And so finally, Samuel's confused. And so Samuel looks at the dad and says, do you have any more sons? Now, I'm not going to ask you by show of hands how many of you have ever forgotten your kids somewhere. That's kind of awkward, right? That's, that, that's, that's not good. But can you imagine the moment where, where Samuel's looking at all of them? No, it's not this one. 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 Finally, he turns and says, do you have another son? And Jesse says, oh, yeah, by the way, I do have another son. That's an awkward moment, right? And so Samuel says, well, bring him here. 
And Jesse basically says, uh, I, I, I don't think it's him. Uh, David's the youngest. He's, he's, he's out in the field. He likes to hang out with sheep all day. He's got his little harp. I mean, there's no way. There is no way that a little harp playing sheep guy is going to be king. But look at what it says. Verse 11. Samuel asks, are these all the sons you have? <laughs> it's like, remember when I asked you to bring all your sons? Are these all the sons you have? And then listen to what it says. There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. And Samuel says, send for him at once. Samuel said, we will not sit down. We will not eat until he arrives. You see the urgency. Samuel's like, look, we, we've got to settle this. God gave me a word. One of your sons, go bring him. Go. We're not going to sit down. We're not going to eat. We're not going to go to uh, Casa Mexicana until we've settled this. And listen to what it says, verse 12. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, look at this phrase. This is the one, anoint him. David was, in his dad's eyes, the least likely to be the king. David was, to his older brothers, maybe a little annoying and a little bit different. David was, to everybody else in the room that day, the least likely person to be the king. Yet in that moment that David shows up, in that moment that Samuel locks eyes with him, in that moment he hears God whisper in his heart, he's the guy God enables Samuel to see something in David that nobody else could see. God used Samuel to speak into David's life. God used Samuel to look somebody in the eye that was literally left out from the rest of his brothers. He looked somebody in the eye that didn't fit in exactly the way the others did. And God used Samuel to call David out and to make him better. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Do you have somebody in your life that when you're with them, you feel encouraged? Do you have somebody in your life that just by being with them, they make you want to be better? Do you have somebody in your life that, that, that when you feel like maybe I've got imposter syndrome, I don't know if I fit in, I don't know if I have what it takes in my job or have what it takes to be a good parent, I don't know if I have what it takes to be, be in this community. Do you have somebody that can call something good out of you? Do you have somebody that makes you better? See, a lot of times when we've got acquaintances in our life, a lot of times they actually happen more by happenstance than anything else. Sometimes we just hang out with people. It's like, well, I see them at the gym every morning, so I'm just going to hang out with them. Or so, maybe it's somebody you bump into uh, at a restaurant. Uh, man, I'm just going to hang out. Maybe it's somebody you went to school with, and it's like, man, we're, you know, they're, they're my closest friend. And they may be great people. They may, may be amazing people. But what I would encourage you to say, do you have somebody in your life that encourages you to get better in the areas that matter most? Do you have somebody that when you're with them, they make you want to be a better husband or wife? Do you have somebody that when you're with them, they make you want to be just a better person on this planet? Do you have somebody that when you're feeling down and in the dumps can call something great up out of you? We need friends like that. We need friends that make us better. I mean, when I look around this room, there's so many amazing folks in this room. I could literally, I could go through 
from fifth grade through seminary and graduate, I, I could think through people at every age and stage in this church and in my family, honestly, but in this church that has made me better. I remember when I was in middle school, man, I was the most annoying middle schooler on the planet. You can ask my brother. He's probably got plenty of stories about how annoying I am. When I was in middle school band, I did dumb stuff. In high school, I would, right? And so I, I remember just feeling awkward. So I, I got saved when I was in middle school. Dr. Scott came to our house and prayed with me and baptized me. And then in high school, I started wrestling with what has God called me to do? I sort of had a path that I thought I was going on, but at the same time, I felt this nudging in the ministry. And honestly, I felt this tension. Like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'm actually wired that way. I felt this sort of the sense, this nudging that maybe that's it. But at the same time, I was like, man, I'm an introvert. I mean, every good pastor I know, they're like major extrovert. They know everybody. They're the center of the party. They usually have a crazy story, right? You've heard those crazy pastor stories. We'd go to the youth conferences and there'd be some pastor that said, hey, I used to be an ax murderer, but Jesus changed my life. I wrote a brand new book called Ax Me About the Lord. And I, uh, what? Or some pastors is like, I, you know, I, I kicked my parents out of their house and then I burned their house down and I went to jail, but the Holy Spirit broke me out. And uh, then I went into the fourth grade and I, um, what? It's like, I, that wasn't me. I was the awkward shy kid about the rowdiest I got as I sat too close to the TV on a Saturday morning, right? Ooh, edgy, right? And so I had this tension inside of me, right? Am I, is this something I'm meant to do or, or not? And I'll never forget Dr. PJ Scott, who is such a gift to this community, 30 plus years, uh, one day just saying to me, Bobby, you've got the heart of a pastor. And I forget, it was simple. I mean, it wasn't some big theological, we were probably at O'Charlie's because that was our place to go. And um, man, it wasn't deep, he didn't preach at me, but to have somebody a couple of decades older than me look at me and say, Bobby, I can see God doing something inside of you. Do you have somebody like As we build our teams, we need that. Number one, we need somebody that makes us better. A second kind of friend that I think all of us need in our life is not only a friend that makes us better, but a friend that makes us stronger. We need a friend that makes us stronger. So if you want to fast forward to the right in your Bible, just a a few pages in 1 Samuel 23, we see the snapshot in the life of David. Snapshot number one is when David's an overlooked kid, a teenager, and God uses Samuel to help make him better, to see something in him that maybe he didn't even see in himself. But a second example is when David's a little bit older. So in 1 Samuel 23, David's still not the king on the throne. He's been anointed to be the next king, but he's not on the throne yet. He's not actually the guy that's in charge yet. And so in this middle time between when he's anointed and when he's actually appointed, Saul's still on the throne. And Saul in his later years just had some really bizarre, crazy moments. Some days he would act like he loved David and he was for David and David would serve him faithfully. And then there would be other days that Saul would literally want David dead. He felt threatened by David, even though Saul's this older guy who's in charge and David's much younger, Saul felt threatened by him. In fact, what would happen is as David grew as a leader, he began to lead armies into battle and and he would win all of these major wars. And when he would come back home, people would celebrate him. 
And they would sort of contrast him between David and Saul, the current king. And, and women started singing songs about David. One of the songs that they would sing is they would say, Saul kills thousands, but David kills tens of thousands. It was their way of saying, David, you're amazing. Now they would sing that. That sounds like an awkward song, Pastor. I don't know how that rhymes or anything. All right? That's not going to be our invitation song today. Kill thousands, and right? It's, it's weird. But in the context, Saul gets jealous because people love, seemingly love David more than they love him. And so there are years that go by that David does not know, is this the day that Saul's finally going to kill me? Is this the day that his javelin's actually going to hit me in the head? Is this the day that he's going to wipe me out? And in 1 Samuel 23, this is one of those moments. David's on the run. David's scared to death. He's God's man. He knows he's been anointed to be the next king, and yet he does not know what's going to happen. Well, Saul, the king, has a son named Jonathan. So Jonathan by birthright, ought to be the next king of Israel. Not David. David's not part of Saul's family. So Jonathan is the son of Saul. He could be the next king if you followed the bloodline. Jonathan could have felt threatened by David, this outsider who's been anointed to be the next king. Jonathan could have been jealous of him. Jonathan could have sided with his, Saul da uh, his dad Saul and said, let's get rid of David. But instead, when David was on the run, when David was afraid for his life, in one of these snapshots, when David hears Saul is wants you dead, here's what it says in 1 Samuel 23, verse 15. It says, one day near Horish, David received news that Saul was on his way to search for him, and look at this phrase, and to kill him. So David's literally gotten the report. Saul's on his way. This is the day. This is the moment. The other shoe's about to drop. And look what it says in the very next verse, verse 16. Jonathan, Saul's son, again, who could have sided with his dad. It says, Jonathan went to find David. And look at this phrase. And he encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. Instead of being jealous, Instead of siding with his dad, instead of saying, David, you're on your own, good luck with that. Saul's own son, the guy that wanted David dead, Saul's own son, Jonathan, went out into the field. And it's like he put his arm around David. And the Bible says he helped him find strength. You need a friend like that. You need somebody like that in your life that when life happens, you need somebody that in the middle of the night when the diagnosis comes through or when the, the death happens or the loss of something major in your life happens, you need somebody in your life that will come and stand with you, not preach at you, not dissect all the theology with you, not try to explain it away, but somebody that will put their arm around you and help you find do you have somebody like that? Do you have somebody that would stick with you through thick and thin? And again, there, there's so many examples of that in this room. I mean, I've seen it play out even uh, in my brother's life. He's got some amazing friends that, man, would do anything for you. One of the snapshots for me, honestly, is Brother Bill. Some of you that may know our story is... Back in 2007, during the summer, uh, my dad started having some back pain. 
And at first he thought, that's no big deal. It's just lifted something heavy at work. Not a big deal. But through a lot of waiting and trying to get to the doctor and all the stuff, by, by that September, he went from just having back pain to literally having to walk with a walker, which is crazy. Six foot four, 200 plus pounds, strong, rarely sick. And somewhere around that September, we found out he had a diagnosis that rocked our world. So he had surgery. We asked the surgeon, hey, what's going on? What's the prognosis? And the surgeon's, man, we got as much as we could, and your dad's a big guy, he's strong. And so for the longest time, we're holding out hope. We're like, you know, we found this, it's been taken care of, it's going to be okay. What we didn't know is mostly for the next three, a little over three months, he'd be in and out of rehab and only home, I think, one time during that time. That December of 2007, we basically spent in the waiting room up at the hospital in Memphis. And there'd be some days that it looked like my dad was rallying and we're, we're super hopeful. Then there'd be days where we're just crushed and we're having those awkward conversations that nobody wants to have at the hospital. And then early January 2008, my mom basically says, you need to go back to Georgia. You've got your life and you've got stuff that you need to do. And I think, if I remember right, the very next day after I got back to Georgia was the day that my mom called around 9.30 p.m. and said he's gone. And at first... I was confused by that. At first, I'm thinking he's gone to another test. He's gone to another treatment. She said he's gone. In that moment, there's like this moment of, I can't believe this just happened. And then I basically get back in the car and drive through the night to come back to be with mom and brother and and niece, the rest of the family. And you sort of shift, grief's such a funny thing. You sort of shift into, well, we've got to make all the arrangements and we've got to get stuff done. And didn't see it coming, but start working through all the plans and the details. And I'll never forget standing in the funeral home just across the street. It felt like something broke inside of me. And I still went on and was in ministry and preached a lot of places. But on the inside, I felt what so many of you have felt, that dark night of the soul. And I'll never forget the number of conversations with folks back here. People like Brother Bill that said, if there's anything your family needs, let us know. I'll never forget the day of my dad's funeral. This giant oak fell across our driveway, we couldn't get out. Brother Keith jumped in a van and came and picked up our family. So we're going to help you. Think about Alan Taylor and Mark Montgomery and so many others that stood in the gap to watch my brother's friends do the same thing. People 
that helped us find strength when we needed it. Do you have somebody like that? Is there somebody that you could call in the middle of the night? Do you have somebody that you can lean on? Do you have somebody that that when life happens, when that thing happens, and it may be different for you, it may not be the same thing that we walk through, but we need that kind of friend. We don't just need people that we sort of casually know in passing. We don't need just people that we see on social media from time to time. We need somebody that can walk with us when we need it most. We need friends that, number one, make us better. We need friends that help us get stronger. And the third kind of friend that David had in his life that all of us need is the kind of friend that loves us enough that they'll tell us the truth. The kind of friend that loves us enough that they'll tell us the truth. If you want to fast forward over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David finally has become the king. David's finally sitting on the throne. David's finally not just been anointed as the king, but he's been appointed. Now he's finally the man in charge. And when David started out as king, he started out positive. When David started out as king, he started out doing the right thing. But somewhere along the way, he got his eyes off the goal. Somewhere along the way, he began to drift. What happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the Bible says that there's a time of the year that kings usually go off to war. So when they go into battle, they don't just send everybody else out. The king would go out himself and the king would lead the charge and the king would be on the front lines. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 11 that David decided, I'm just going to stay home. David decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing. And if you know the story, that doesn't go well. David gets a little arrogant. David begins to buy into the press of all these ladies singing about him. Saul kills his thousands. David kills his tens of thousands. And so in 2 Samuel 11, David's where he's not supposed to be doing what he's not supposed to do. David ends up on a rooftop. And if you know the story, you know how it goes. He, he sees a woman that's not his wife, and he becomes infatuated with her. He starts asking the question, who is that woman? Who is that woman? And I think David's men tried to warn him. I think David's men tried to nudge him and say, because the, their response is, well, isn't that, isn't that Uriah's wife? Right? Hint, hint, right? She's married, right? She belong, right? She, she's not available. And, and David just doesn't listen. And I don't think David got up in the morning and said, you know what? I'm going to blow my kingdom up and I'm going to blow my life up and I'm going to make a horror. I don't think anybody starts out that way. But David begins to flirt with sin. He starts by inviting her over to the palace to have a nice meal. One thing leads to another. He ends up in an inappropriate affair with this woman. And David tries to cover it. He's thinking, I'm the king. I'm in charge. Nobody's going to call me on this. I can do whatever I want to. What's the big deal? I mean, her husband's off at battle. Her husband, Uriah, was at the battle that David should have been at. He's fighting for the kingdom while David's staying home, cheating on his wife, right? And, and so David tries to act like it's not a big deal, but if you know the story, she winds up being pregnant. And so David has this moment, like, what am I gonna do? I mean, her husband's been off at battle, so if people find out that she's showing and she's pregnant, they'll find out that, it, that something went on that wasn't right. And so David, in his mind, instead of confessing, instead of coming clean, he tries to cover his tracks. So essentially what David does is he invites her husband home from battle. And she, he invites 
Uriah, her husband, home from battle. He assumes that after he's been at battle for this length of time, he's been around smelly guys and living in you know, the mud, he's going to come home and want to be with his wife. And then later when the battle's over and they find out she's pregnant, they'll just assume, oh yeah, he came home from battle. Oh yeah, it's, it's her husband's child. But if you know how the story goes, her husband doesn't do that. When, when her husband comes home, he's so burdened that his fellow countrymen are in battle that basically he says to David, who am I to go home and be with my wife while my friends are in battle? In other words, he's a person of integrity. He's a person of character. He's like, there's no way I'm going to go home and enjoy being home while my fellow countrymen are, are in battle. And so he doesn't go home to be with his wife. So David, again, the second day, instead of confessing, instead of coming clean, he's like, man, I need, I need to try harder. And so David wines and dines him. He tries to get him a little bit tipsy and he tries to send him back home again. And he tries to hope that, that, that he's going to go be with his wife and he'll cover his tracks. But again, Uriah says, there's no way I can go home and be with my wife while my friends are in battle. And so David, instead of coming clean, David, instead of confessing, he ends up writing a letter to the commander of the army. He says to the commander of the army in this letter, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah on the front line of battle. I want you to put him in the fiercest part of battle. And when the battle's raging the fiercest, I want you to pull everybody else back so that he dies. And he writes this letter, he rolls it up. He seals it with a signet ring. And he literally hands it to Uriah, her husband, to deliver his own. He doesn't know what's in it, but he ends up delivering his own death warrant. Uriah goes back to battle, ready to fight. He gives this letter to the commander of the army. The commander pops it open, reads it. I'm, the commander's like, I, I have no idea why David wants me to do this. I don't know. This doesn't make sense why he would want this person to be on the front line of battle and die in the battle. But he's the king. Surely he knows what's best. So literally, that's what he does. He puts this ladies, this innocent guy on the front line of battle in the fierce part of the battle. He pulls everybody else back and Uriah dies in battle and David finds out and thinks, I've covered my tracks. He's thinking when people find out Bathsheba's pregnant, they'll just assume, they don't know the whole story. They'll just assume it's her husband's child. No big deal. I've covered my tracks. And for the next year or so, David on the outside thought he had it covered up, but on the inside, it was eating away at his soul. On the outside, he's still in charge. Outside still looks like the king until Nathan shows up. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan shows up. And the prophet comes to David and says, David, I've got a story. I need your help on this. And he begins to describe this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He begins to say, look, there's these two neighbors that live next door to each other. One neighbor has plenty. One neighbor has everything he could ever want. He's got flocks and herds and all the things, but his neighbor only has one little lamb. That's all he has. He's got a small house, one little lamb. That one little lamb is more like a family member, not just an animal to him. And so he's describing this to David. One guy has plenty. He's got everything he'd ever want. This other guy only has one little lamb. This rich guy, though he had herds and flocks and all the things, when he had a party, instead of taking from his own animals to feed his guests, he went over to his poor neighbor's house and took that one little lamb. 
all that guy had. And the Bible says that as Nathan's telling David that story, that David's blood began to boil. His blood pressure goes up. He's so offended that this rich guy would rip off and take the only thing this poor guy has. And listen to what it says in 2 Samuel verse 12. David was furious. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. Right? David's blood pressure goes up. He's like, I cannot believe this injustice. I can't believe this guy would rip off this other guy. This guy that had plenty would take all that this guy has. So David jumps up and says, he must surely die. Nathan, in that moment, looks at David and says, David, you're the man. You're the man. You're the guy. You had everything you could ever ask for. Yet you took that one man's wife. Think about that. That was risky. David could have snapped and said, Nathan, you're dead. Right? David could have gotten angry. David could have done all kinds of things. And yet Nathan loved him enough that he was willing to risk that confrontational moment to look David in the eye and to tell him the truth. If you want to write this down, if you haven't read it recently, I would encourage you this afternoon, check out Psalm 51. It's a psalm that David writes in response to this moment where David says things like, God, would you wash me and make me clean? God, would you cleanse me and make me whiter than snow? He goes on and says, God, would you restore the broken parts inside of me? Would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? What it seems to indicate that for that year or so that had gone by between the death and the confrontation, that on the outside he's still king, but on the inside it was eating him alive. And God used a friend in David's life that loved him enough that he told him the truth and it changed his life forever. See, sometimes in our lives, we think about stuff. We think, man, well, if I just had something, then my life would be better. If I just had this thing, maybe my life would be complete. But maybe the thing that's missing from your life and from my life is not something. Maybe it's someone. Maybe there's somebody that's missing in your life. Maybe you've got two of these, but you're missing one of them. Or maybe you've only got one. of. Maybe you don't have any of these. Maybe the thing that's missing is not something, but someone. And there's somebody that God wants to use in your life that could literally, and I'm not over-exaggerating, there's somebody that God could use in your life that could change your life forever. Somebody that makes you better. Somebody that makes you stronger. Somebody that loves you enough, they they will tell you the truth. So here's my question today. Do you have this kind of team in your life? Do you have folks that when you think about this list, and it's certainly not exhaustive or weighty, but if you think about this list, do you have somebody's name you could attach to it? Is there somebody in your life? Maybe it's somebody that you work with that's more than a work friend. Maybe it's somebody that you're in Sunday school with that, that you've gone deeper with. Maybe it's somebody in your community. Do you have somebody that you could say makes you better, that helps you get stronger, that loves you enough that they'll tell you the truth? And if you don't, I want to encourage you. My call to action today is for you to be on the lookout and begin to pray, God, would you bring these friends in my life? 
because I'm telling you, throughout the years, both in my family and through this faith family, God has placed so many people in my life that have helped me at each one of those stages. So do you have that kind of friend? My second question or encouragement would be this, that as your grandmother would probably tell you that if you want to have that kind of friend, you need to what? You need to be that kind of friend. Don't take your relationships for granted. Don't assume that everybody's okay because one of the things that COVID has shown all of us is that hardly anybody's okay. We need people in our lives, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your Sunday school class. This church needs you to step in and to help somebody be better, to help somebody get stronger, to help somebody by telling them the truth. And the best way that I know to be that kind of friend is to experience the friendship that comes from Jesus. And that's what this faith family is built on. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches us that every single one of us deserves separation from God forever in eternity. But the Bible says that at just the right time, even while we're still sinners, that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. The Bible says that for anyone that would ask him, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, he said, you will be saved. You don't have to wonder, you don't have to doubt, you don't have to question, you can know that. So today, I want to encourage you. If you're a believer, do you have these friends in your life? If you're a believer, are you being intentional to be that kind of friend? And maybe today there's never been a moment that you've put your faith in Jesus. Maybe that would be the first step, that you would have the best friend that you could ever know Jesus in your life. Would you bow with me for prayer? Would you close your eyes just for a moment? In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to have a time of really response. Some of our pastors are going to be here and they would love to encourage you and to pray for you. So maybe there's something God's been nudging in your heart today. Maybe there's a next step that God's placed in your heart. Maybe for some of you, you're a believer, yet there's something God's placed in your heart that you're meant to do. Maybe you feel the call to action with Brother Bill's life to say, I want to be that kind of person that serves others. I want to be that kind of person that doesn't wait on everybody else to do it, but I'm going to step in and do it. Maybe you want to come to one of your pastors today and say, hey, put, put me in. I want to be part of that team. Maybe for some of you today, honestly, you've been walking through a hard path. I think a lot of us have been. Maybe you feel that, that relational deficit in your life. Maybe this morning you want to use this response time as a time to pray and say, God, would you put these people in my life? God, would you help me to have this team in my life? God, would you help me not to do this alone, but to have people to walk with me? And maybe for some, today would be the day that you say, I need Jesus. That you come to one of our pastors this morning and say, would you help me know how to know Jesus? I want to have a friend that sticks closer than my brother. I want to have a friend in Jesus. I want to pray for us this morning. As I pray, I just want to ask you to help me know how to pray. Is there anybody this morning that would just say, hey, Bobby, as you pray, pray for me. I, I know Christ personally, and man, I, I want to be that kind of friend. I want to be that kind of person that's an encouragement to the people around me. I want to be the kind of person that adds value to the people around me. I want to be the kind of person that helps people get stronger and to get better and to know the truth so that they can live the life that God has for them. If that's you and you just say, hey, would you pray for me? that I would live with that kind of intention, that I'd live with that kind of mission. Would you just quietly just slip your hands straight up in the air? You just say, hey, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of life I want to live. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. 
Is there anybody this morning that would say, Bobby, as you pray, pray for me because honestly, I need those friends in my life right now. Maybe I touched on something that struck a chord with you or maybe I didn't say anything, but it's just been prompting you. Man, I wanna have that, that level of connection in my life. I wanna have those people in my life. If that's you and you just say, hey, pray for me. I'm feeling lonely, I feel isolated and I need some of those friends. Would you just do the same thing? Just slip your hand up so I can pray for you, so I can lift you up, yeah. One last question. Is there anybody this morning that would just say, Bobby, as you pray, pray for me. I'm not sure that I know Christ personally. I'm not sure I've ever been saved. Maybe you've been to church or maybe this is your first time, but you'd say, Bobby, pray for me. I don't know that I have a relationship with Jesus, but I know I need to. If that's you and you'd allow me to pray for you, would you do the same thing? Just slip your hands straight up in the air, straight up in the air so I know how to pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, thanking you for the amazing legacy of this faith family. Thank you that 184 years ago, this church was birthed with a heart to know you and to live on mission with you. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray that today for those that, that wanna live with that kind of intention, I pray that you would help them to see people the way that you see them. I pray that you'd help them to love people the way that you love them and that we would be the kind of people that help people get better, that help people find their strength, that help people by knowing the truth and living it out. And Father, I pray for my friends that, that feel maybe lonely or hurt or isolated and maybe feel like they don't know who they can turn to. Father, I pray if it would please you that you just use this church to put arms around them, to show them your love, to show them your care, to show your tangible presence in their life. Father, I pray for any that don't know you, that if it would please you, that today you would draw them to yourself, that they would know you as their Savior and their Lord. In just a minute, I'm going to finish praying. We're going to stand. As soon as we stand, we begin to sing. I'm going to invite you to come. If you need to take a next step, if we can pray for you, if we can help you in your walk with Christ, our pastors will be here. I invite you to come. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, would you help us to follow you? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. David Jane leads us. I invite you to come. Would you respond to him today? This altar's open if you need to pray. Our pastors are here if you need somebody to pray with you and for you. I invite you to come as we sing this out. Would you sing this out? Greatest thy faithfulness.